Welcome to Required. Uh, I can never word out. It's the art. <laughs> now you would have this. No, Come on, absolutely not. See you. Welcome see you. to Required Reading. I'm uh, a host looking in for a better title. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Hoffman. Um, and on panel we have Mike Burns and Matt Romano. Yeah, so welcome, Matt. Been, yeah, welcome, Matt. Happy to be here. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, my colleague in the social studies department here, my, my, my boss, my chair. Uh, so God. this is probably uh, your favorite book. You've been pitching this for a while. I have. It's it's if it's not a favorite, it's on a very short list of favorites. Um, Cormac McCarthy. I was introduced to Cormac McCarthy in in college. I was a business major. Had to take a class called Great Books. Great Books Two, Southern Literature, and that's where I read All the Pretty Horses. Um, and just loved his 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 style, use of narrative, use of dialogue, just the whole thing. The way he puts you in the American Southwest, just awesome. So, yeah, uh, we were talking. I'm I'm the biggest Coen Brothers fan you could imagine. <laughs> so I I first saw the the movie, and it's one of the most all-consuming movies. Like it's one of those movies you see, and then you have to do nothing else for the rest of the day. Right. Then I I've seen the movie three or four times. I picked up the book at your recommendation last year, year before last, mm-hmm. and it's. It reads the same way. Yeah. I've never read a book that had such a pulse to it, other than maybe, you know, like a James Bond book, like like little books. That this yeah. just goes. It flies. I just reread it again, probably a third or fourth time, and I was surprised how fast it goes. Um, I picked it up when the movie was being prepared, saying, "Okay, they're going to do this. I've got to read it first. Um, and then every time I reread it, there's always that kind of intersection between what was in the movie, what was in the and the movie is so loyal. And it's so well cast that when I'm reading it, I can hear Tommy Lee Jones even before I saw the movie. It, that just fit. It just fits so well, um, which kind of adds another dimension to it. Yeah, I, I agree. I I've read the book until just recently preparing for this, and I, um, it's hard not to think of the film because yeah. it, it lines so well. And as we were talking before we started recording, just his pacing, I mean, it, it reads like a screenplay in many yeah. places. The dialogue, just, it's a page of dialogue with very few attributions. So it's both fast and slow for me because sometimes you have to slow down and figure out who said that because he doesn't say like mm-hmm. Bell said or Moss said. Um, but again, the the tension that he builds through it, it just keeps you turning the pages and just yeah. goes, goes, goes. So well, it, and it's an, an interesting mix there. And whenever Anton Chigurh is in a scene, the book stops in a good way because you never know what he's going to do. Um, I mean, he's he's quickly yeah. figure out he's gonna kill somebody. Somebody's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one's gonna leave seeing or knowing him. So that's yeah, in most cases. But I mean, there's the coin flips. There's this mentality. Like, I mean, even his kind of end of this book, which we'll get to, it's it's almost unsatisfying because he's out of the movie. He he, yeah. he drives out of the book, kinda. It's weird. We'll get there. Yeah. Um, do either of you think you can summarize the book in any way? Summarize is tough. It, obviously, you have three main characters. Yeah. First time I picked it up, I picked it up assuming it was the story of Llewellyn Moss. And assuming we're going to learn about who knows what, maybe happy ending, maybe not, but it was his story. And, and it dawned on me when he had his unfortunate demise, it's not his story. Uh, it took that for me to realize, oh, this isn't his story. And then over time, obviously, it's clear it's Sheriff Ed Tom Bell's story. He's the no country for old men guy. Uh, it can't be Anton Chigurh's story. I don't think we're meant to know Anton Chigurh's story. 
No. That's that's part of the mystery of the yeah, book. It's inscrutable, and, yeah. Exactly. Um, what could create? We don't. The layperson doesn't need to know what created a monster like this, except for the fact that they exist, and that's what Sheriff Bell is trying to deal with. So maybe that is a summation of the story: is that you have Ed Tom Bell's story, Sheriff Bell's story, and and he's trying to grip with this, and this is not unique to him. It's probably unique to every generation trying to deal with this, which makes it timeless. This is 1980, but it's just as true today for anyone that is the same age and, and seeing how things have changed. He's complaining about kids in town with bones in their noses and green hair. You yeah. know, it, it, it's the same story in a different context over and over again. Totally. I mean, and I mean, to your point, uh, the character that hits that home for me the most is Carson Wells. Because he comes in in like, what, 60, 70% through the whole book. Yeah. And he, you think he's the one who knows what's going on. No, nah, he lasts, right. he yeah. lasts two, two chapters, two sections, that's out. He's gone. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to see Carson anymore. Yeah, no. He's, he's, he's gone. Um, but yeah, essentially what happens, uh, at least at first, up top, is you said it's Llewellyn. Llewellyn is out hunting um, pronghorns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Antelope. Yeah. Antelope. And uh, comes across a bloodbath, a drug deal gone wrong. And there's, you know, a pile of money. Uh, there's people shot everywhere. And, again, this could be a story told any other time. It's set around 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could imagine this set in the Old West. And there's just a shootout's gone wrong. There's a pile of money. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, it's set. He is given a, a kind of a classic, almost a simple Moral problem. What do I do? Do I take the money or not? You don't get the feeling he's a wealthy man. This could be. A, this is a life changer. A literally a life changer. So he makes the decision that, of course, for us, <laughs> triggers the whole movie, the whole book, the whole whatever. But it's a, not an irrational decision he makes. It's but just, he, he agonizes over yeah. in his own way. Like he knows this is going to be trouble if he takes this money, and yet he gives to that temptation, which I think is. Sort of, I don't know if the last, if the book has morals, we can talk about that, but there's a moment of hesitation there, I think is pregnant with Yeah. I think what's meaning. interesting though, he, he doesn't, and this may be my interpretation alone, but I don't think he agonized as much about the money as he agonized about do I go back and bring the guy some water. Oh, and the yeah. guy's and something dying inside of him knows that he's not going to make it through the night anyway. Mm-hmm. But there's something lingering, and that's part of the morality tale here, is that there's something lingering. Yeah, he's got his bag of money, but there's that guy out there that just wanted some water. Yeah. And he, he goes. Yeah, to and, his own demise. And uh, yeah, yeah, now he knows what he's in for. Right. Now, yeah. if he doesn't go, they probably just show up at, at the trailer, and that's the end of that. Right. Yeah. Um, but his, his, for lack of a better term, like you said, his agonizing over that decision mm-hmm. just stood out to me. But it's, it's just such a perfect Western scene. Yeah, the, the guy with the briefcase has crawled away and is sitting under like the one tree. Yeah, and he's just, what do you do? Well, I think the lie to his wife is he's fixing to do something stupid, right? It's, it's he knows it's what he should do, but it's the wrong decision. It's, yeah. it's this amazing mm-hmm. thing. Um, so are we meant to sympathize with him as he's on the run? He's I definitely so. well, he's definitely so. the most human so. person. Right. You I want mean, him to succeed. I mean, Shigor is a force of pure malevolence. Like he's evil. Like he's evil in a very literal way. And I think Ed Tom Bell is 
what? He's a, a sage. He's a wise man, but he doesn't really factor into the story. He's a wise man, but he's out of his league. Yeah. And it's you sympathize with him also because he wants. I, I in this in this rereading this time around, I recognized, and maybe it's where I am in life. I recognize much more of a paternal instinct in Ned Tom Bell as he looks at his job and his role in the community. He sees himself paternally that he's got to take care of these people. Yeah. And he sees Llewellyn and Carla Jean. They are his people. And how old is he? He said he was he's made sheriff when he was 25. Right. This is 1980, so he's in his 60s, late 60s? Got to be. Maybe. I mean, yeah, he makes was sense. in war, um, obviously. Yeah. Um, now I might get this confused. But he was in World War II, right? Because this is right. the 80s. And wasn't Llewellyn supposed to be in Vietnam? He, he was, was, yeah. So, I mean, but you have that even there. Like, in World War II, we're clearly the good guys. And in Vietnam, it's much more gray area. Meanwhile, yeah. Chagur just likes to kill. So, <laughs> it's just, again, it's it's just interesting kind of structure that we have. All, almost all morality in law enforcement is interesting. Like, we have uh, border guards. Some really care. Some are real hard asses. Some aren't. That matters into the plot. Mm-hmm. We have the wet-behind-the-years deputy, who you assume is going to replace the sheriff. But he seems even more out of his league. He, he seems at least naive compared to what's going on. Uh, we have the other old sheriff who's just as old, and he's complaining, like you mentioned earlier, about green hair and piercings. And he's he's no more prepared for this. It's just It's so yeah. interesting, like... I mean, I guess the oral, the other moral center we have is Shigur. It's just like, you screwed up, you deserve to die. <laughs> and he has his own morality. He does. It's not something any of us would agree with as moral, but he has this yeah, sense of right and wrong. Code of ethics, for he sure. He does. Yeah. Now, some of it is based on a coin flip, but the coin got there the same way he did. So, yeah. by his logic, it makes sense. You want to introduce him? Because his introduction is incredible. So, yeah, Anton. Holy cow. Uh, so, yes, his introduction is when he has been, um, what's the right word, <laughs> detained. Yeah. Uh, small town deputy detains him. He is sitting back listening as the deputy is calling in uh, to let, I guess, his sheriff know that he has him. Pulls this trick where he gets himself, he has, okay, so he's got the handcuffs behind his back, somehow is limber enough to drop his hands beneath his feet and wiggle his way out. Chokes the deputy in a very memorable fashion. Yeah. <laughs> and now we know who Anton Chigurh is. And that's one of the most graphic scenes I've ever read. I mean, it's it's almost, it's very detailed. It um, is. And, it, and with good reason. I mean, they're trying to show you how brutal, how brutal Anton Chigurh is, but also how brutal this country is out there, uh, how it is in the Southwest. Um, but I think we, we should pause or add, let me interrupt you, Matt. So yeah. he's just so matter-of-fact about it and very Hemingway-esque in the way it's just like, he right. did this, he did this, very simple declarative sentences, and it, uh, just the way it is, essentially. It's not glorified. No, not at it, all. It's not it's, at all, yeah. It's mm-hmm. very stripped down, but horrific all the more. Which kind of is how Anton Chigurh is. He's, he is very to the point. And in the way he, in conversation with other individuals, there's not any way of putting it, that's how it is. Right. You didn't marry in. You married into it. You yeah. didn't, you know. Um, Very black and white in that way. And that's how he is. That's how he views life. Uh, he seems to have zero remorse from anything he does. Obviously, uh, so the deputy and then the man on the side of the road, and we first see the cattle device, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's a man, as as Carson Wells put it, he's a man without who lacks a sense of humor. 
um, <laughs> yet still has a sense of right or wrong, whatever that means in his demented fashion. So, yeah, it, Sheriff Bell describes him as a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, no one has really seen him because everyone who's come across him in an adversarial way is gone. Right, that's right. Uh, they don't survive. Um, I was thinking about it earlier today. What would an origin story for Anton Chigurh look like? I don't want to know. I really don't. Yeah, what? And, and the book is better without knowing. Yeah. Um, you hate to think or even allow yourself to think of what creates this type of human. Yeah. Um, yet there's Sheriff Bell saying, well, it was the boy in Huntsville had the same look in his eye that I imagine Anton Chigurh has. Yeah. Uh, this is out there, and, and it's something that he said he's not prepared for. Yeah, I mean, and we when we we're talking about Shigur like he's a ghost, but like you said, we come in, we don't even know really how the deputy got him. We don't know what right. he was doing before, and then he just kind of leaves the story. It's as though like this isn't even worth really mentioning in the long run of his story. There's so many other people in his way that it just flows through. It reminds me um, Stephen King, like The Man in Black, uh, in the Stand movie, uh, the book The Stand, or the, the Dark Tower series, right? Like, it's just this force of evil that kind of flows through, and between the gold, the bolt gun and the yeah. silenced shotgun, he's just nothing. Yeah, it's like the High Plains Drifter just coming mm-hmm. in and doing his thing and leaving. Um, Very much a like a Western trope, which yeah. is incredible. It is, but he's not alone because no. we get a little anecdote later on about um, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but. Sheriff Bell goes to basically save uh, this individual that was pegged for a murder, and he's convinced that Shigur did it, tying back into the original detainment. Yeah. It wasn't him. The guy laughs at him when he's on death row. It makes Bell feel even more incompetent right. as yeah. a result, because he was convinced this is the guy. Um, so they do tie back into that original scene in The Deputy, but... I don't know. I don't know if, if, if McCarthy's trying to make a point that Chigurh is not as rare as we think. I, I don't know, because he does bring up other examples. Well, I mean, that's the opening monologue by, yeah. by, by uh, the sheriff, where he's like, you know, I sent one guy to die, mm-hmm. and I saw this look in his eye that let me... And I mean, like, it's it's remarkable. It's so dark. It is. It's so dark. Um, so I think yeah. it is. I think it's meant to be, like, it's yeah. overwhelming. There's, um, there's more of these out there This force of evil or whatever and he's too i don't know too out of touch i mean how but how can you be in touch with something so horrific i don't know how can you deal with that on a human level um but it's sort of beyond him as an old man i guess to face that to deal with it yeah i don't know and i mean since it's like an amorality tale because everyone makes the wrong decisions, right? You know, where'd you get the money to get in place? I, I just, there's just, there's just something so. I mean, we we will get back to his wife because you know. I think she she she's dead, right? He kills she her. Is. Yes, he kills her. Well, he he had to. He promised Llewellyn that he would. So right, there's his ethics. He had to follow yeah. through. There's his ethics. Exactly. Right, yeah. He said that he would. He had to do it. Didn't matter that Llewellyn was dead. Llewellyn had a chance to save her life. He did not, and he had to. He had to follow through. Right. So he drove to Odessa, and when it, and it means absolutely point. nothing at that point, which is what, yeah. it, which is what's maddening and breaks your heart, and just yeah, the pure yeah. evil. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's so out of touch. Um, okay, so we should 
I don't know how we want to tackle this because it follows essentially three narrative structures and then they just keep bumping into each other. Um, so we can start with Llewellyn because he kind of drives the plot. Uh, he goes back to his, you know, first to his wife just to say, try to go to bed, doesn't, goes back to the water. And uh, this is where we have our first kind of action sequence. Uh, he is stumbling across this abandoned massacre. And when he's there, uh, of course, by that point, everyone's dead. Uh, but there's another truck on the horizon that opens up fire on him. And this chase sends him to the first of, you know, about a half dozen really disgusting motels, um, where he hopes, really hopes, he can hide the money in some way that he can make this right. He, he can get away with, um, well, I mean, in a very Catholic way, you can't get away from sin once you've committed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the next morning, Bell finds out about this. Because the next morning, this is when the deputy's like, well, you want to go out and see the see the scene? Everyone's dead. It's just a pile of corpses. Um, we can even talk about the bodies a little bit, too. Just because there's a dude who comes and picks him up with the truck. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't bother to tie the tarp down because he's just so used to moving around corpses. And he's like, you know, we would have used a van, but... Van ain't four by four. Can't get back there. Can't get yeah. back there. Mm-hmm. It's just this. So it's like it's like Bell's the only one who's uncomfortable with all this death in some way, and I think that's maybe where his disconnect is. He's like, is no one shocked by any of this anymore? Because uh, I mean, there's heroin in the town, which is what the d- drug deal went wrong over, and someone's made off with what, like two point four, two point five million dollars. It's so much. It's it's more money than he ever would have thought of, and yet. People are dying in piles. It's crazy. To your point about being shocked by all the deaths, I mean, are we as readers supposed to be shocked? Do you think McCarthy is trying to do that? Or <laughs> well, reading McCarthy, why is this so violent? That. I don't know if it's the numbers or the manner of the deaths. I mean, true. It, yeah, it, it, it's a body count, and they keep piling on. But when he gets detailed, like the first scene, the opening scene with the deputy, or numerous other ones like Carson Wells. Um, it's the detail that that McCarthy gets into that mm-hmm. is shocking, and 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 then maybe that's that's also intentional. It's not about the numbers; it's about the one individual and humanizing that one individual that is killed. And but you know, brutal or not, they're all brutal. But I think the brutality brings the brings it to life that these are real humans, and maybe shocks us into Sheriff Bell's perspective of, of my God, what's going on here? How could how could this be happening? Especially for, from his perspective, how can this be happening in my town? Right. Yeah. I've been here for forever, my whole life. Yeah. How can this be happening? And, and he even mentions it one time, you know, we solved every murder. Now we've got nine unsolved murders right now. Yeah. How does that happen? Mm-hmm. And, and there they do address the body count. Um, yeah. But you're right. I think all the rest of them, I mean, his deputy is so naive to it all. Um, he's just kind of, okay, well, this is what we have. Yeah. You know? Uh, I, even some of the, the the dialogue at that opening, when they first go out there, they see the burning car. I should have brought some wieners. Should have brought some hot dogs. Um, holy cow! I, you know, first yeah. time reading, and I was like, really? You know, yeah. And I think Sheriff Bell's thinking that he's like, okay, this is this is something real here. We're yeah. Yeah. Not going to be bringing out hot dogs and wieners and you know having ourselves a barbecue. No, and it's weird that that line is that humor is that attempted humor because. Yeah. And I know it is, but it doesn't. I, I'm, I'm with you, Matt. Like, and I read that, I just think, oh man, just 
it's just so bleak. And you contrast this with what we've talked about, like Flannery O'Connor before, where she has these, you know, grotesque characters and shocking things happen, but there's always sort of this weird redemptive angle or possibility. I don't get that from this. Do you guys get that at all? No, I mean, the, even there's a scene later where he's meeting with the deputy at one of the diners, again, one of the various yeah. greasy spoons, and he's reading a newspaper, and he's yeah. like, there's this, uh, it was like a, like an inn, and they would invite old people and kill them and bury them in the backyard and take their... And torture them. And right. torture, torture them and take yeah. their social security. Mm-hmm. And the, the he laughs out of awkwardness. He kind of chuckles, and he's like, yeah, sometimes you got to laugh. It's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's so horrific. And it's, again, it's a world that... No one can prepare for. Um, but I was also going to point out, too, when you were saying the death being awful, one of the more awful parts are the people who survive. I mean, we have Shigur pulling the buckshot out of his leg after blowing up a pharmacy, right? We yeah. have, you know, we have Llewellyn who gets shot and is bleeding to death in Mexico before a band takes him to a hospital. Like, this is horrific right. stuff. Um it's almost easier to just get shot and to move on. Like living is hard in this world. Um, I, I read those scenes like Shigur, you know, cleaning himself up. What kind of research did Cormac McCarthy do in order to write right. that? Yeah. It's incredible to me though. The detail of that yeah. is unbelievable. I mean, that, that sounds like the kind of stuff you talk about, Nick, when you were working on your PhD with yeah. civil war. Med- I mean, how do you how do you learn that? Right. I mean, sure, he could be an expert on different kinds of guns, but how do you learn how a man cleans himself up after being shot with a shotgun? Right. Yeah. This detail—it's incredible. And I—I don't—I honestly—it's—it's it's like reading uh, Thomas Harris talk about in Silence of the Lambs or something. You're just like, so did you just walk up to someone and say, you know, like what FBI class? What like? <laughs> Right, because that must be like Cormac McCarthy just sitting in the back of some sort of you know police academy class, a very dry you know no Steve Gutenberg at all in that police academy. Here's how you stitch yourself back together. Oh my god! <laughs> but again, is that supposed to be a funny scene? I don't know. Like the the, the nonplussed way he blows up the car to break into the pharmacy, it's absurdist. It's brilliant. It, it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he, he again the detail. He clearly thought a lot about that. And yeah. He's like, "How would I blow up a car? Well, I, I get a hanger and I get a shirt and I put mm-hmm. it in." Oh my god! Yeah. It's like the Terminator. It reminds me of the Terminator. Very much just so. Like, just uh, like the, robotic. He's you know very yeah. binary. This is what I have to do, and I'm going to do it. And, and he's consequences guided by his. Damned. He's guided by his ethics. Yeah. And, you know that car. Yeah. Blow it up because I need some stuff from the pharmacy. Yeah. Do you guys know much about McCarthy? I tried to find some research or interviews. I found one very awkward interview with Oprah. Um, <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah. And they, like they're sitting on the couch and he's slumping. He's got his hand on his face the whole time and he's he's just clearly uncomfortable. Um, I mean he's very polite and everything, yeah. but it was just that he's very reclusive and and not very. Um, accessible as far as his process or what he's thinking or where he does his research or anything. So, um, I mean, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. sort of the opposite of like you know someone that's been media coached. Clearly, he's he's not been. <laughs> he's not interested. In <laughs> yeah, that. he's not he's not the master of the soundbite at all. So yeah, no, I, I just check it out. It's really a, like awkwardly beautiful interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I imagine him with an eye patch and you know just straight whiskey, <laughs> no eyes, just drinking it, and because it is like this. This is. I mean, if this was, you know, eighth or ninth grade lit, 
which we would never teach it like that. But your question is, is there, you know, where's God in this? Where, mm-hmm. when, cause it, this is, a, this is a bleak world. <laughs> I don't know. And again, that's what Sheriff Bell's asking. And it comes, yeah. that was another theme that came up more than I remembered was, and I was trying, I could not find the quote I was looking for, but there are a number of different places where he's questioning his own faith. Yeah. It, it comes up in a lot of his narratives mm-hmm. of, of, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Right. And, and he's questioning faith. And I don't know if that's meant to almost be another layer of that paternalistic instinct he has and, and questioning that as well. I don't know, but that's kind of where I'm going with it. And again, that's maybe because I'm reading it at a different phase in my life that I'm seeing it different. That's part of the fun things about reading books over and over again, five, ten years apart. Amen. You that's start what picking this up is all that kind about. of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I've definitely seen that with this book. Is that I, I never noticed that the last time I read it, which probably was at least eight to ten years ago. All right. So can you flash back to what you did love about it when you first read it or when you had that class in college and McCarthy in general? McCarthy in general, the first thing that stood out to me when I first read All the Pretty Horses, obviously how vivid he, he described things, but this is going to sound ridiculous, the lack of quotation marks. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. It's actually, I think, very effective in terms of two things. I think one is the pace. I think you keep going, but also, too, it keeps your attention because you have to zone in. You can't casually read Cormac McCarthy. No. You have to lock in because you have to know who's speaking. And sometimes you have to go back and reread to to get back in the sequence and say, who said that? Absolutely, yeah. It's got to be intentional. And and that, that was one of the first things that stood out to me, and it's consistent in all of his books. Maybe he just didn't feel like doing it when he typed it. I don't know. But... It's effective to me, and it's unique, as far as I know, to Cormac McCarthy. And that that added to the the rhythm, the sequence, the you know the style of his writing, uh, along with just how vivid he could describe scenes, situations, this part of the country, all of that combined. It just it just hooked me in. All right. Mm-hmm. I read about the, the punctuation. Apparently, he was like a graduate assistant um, for someone for a professor, and he edited out a bunch of the commas and punctuation. And the professor was like, "That's great." And he, that's sort of just internalized it from there. Oh, wow. So whether or not that's true or not, but read on the internet, it must be true. It must be true. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's got to be. That's that's the only reason. But he has a very sparse style that I think you either like or you don't. Um, well, you said it is Hemingway-ish yeah. in just how direct. Yeah. You know, one true sentence. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and I think it makes it feel like internal monologue is just as important as spoken dialogue. Because it's impossible to tell if Bell's thinking. Well, he italicizes the Bell chapter, so well, he that's does. how you know that. Yeah. But, like, you know, the stuff, when you don't add quotes, it's much more, it just feels like everything matters equally, which, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting motion to me. Yeah. Um, and as for Bell himself, I don't know, I'm trying to think of, maybe his paternalism comes from the fact that He's trying to prepare this deputy to replace him or whatever, and realizes he can't. There's, there's nothing. He, his, his knowledge is outdated before he's even ready to leave. Something like that. I mean, you know, the the saying is, I think the deputy is Wendell. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And he goes, "This is a mess, ain't it, Sheriff?" And he goes, "If it ain't, it'll be a mess. It'll do until the mess gets it'll here. Until it gets here, yep. It's the movie's coming, the plot's coming, the story's coming, whether we're ready or not. It's ominous, but." It's yeah. almost his attempt at humor. He's, he's he's like, well, we're we have to live with what's coming. Well, you, you reach that point, maybe where that's your only respite is is I don't know how to handle this, so I I go I move towards humor. Right. You know, you can't stop what's coming. 
Well, and he kind of knows that, you know, whatever this plague that is Anton Chigurh is coming, because no one else seems to get, you know, do you think Llewellyn knows it's coming from? He has no idea. It's coming from whether or not, like, everyone keeps saying, like, does my husband have a chance? Well, if I get there, maybe. Uh, he needs help and he doesn't realize it. It's 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 this, I, and again, we don't know what uh, Ed Bell knows, Ed Tom Bell knows really either. We know that he's haunted by his past. We know yeah. uh, what he did in World War II terrifies him and keeps him up at night. We'll talk about his dreams at the end here because that is incredible. Yeah, you can't avoid that part. Yeah, yeah he did. When they reveal his his, I don't know if I'm gonna go there now, but when you when they reveal his World War II story, when he's with Uncle Ellis and and, and shares it with him, the first person he's ever shared with, other than the um, officer that was uh, presenting his 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 medal, um, you can see what's driven him for so long. It, it, it drives an insecurity, and every every human has these insecurities, and mm-hmm. he's had this memory of of letting down his men for 40 years almost mm-hmm. 35 years uh, from when it happened it, I up and left you know I tucked him and left and he's afraid that, that he's doing it again uh, whether it's not confronting Chigurh or hanging it up and he's he's really struggling with that and I, I think that's what's leading into the very end of the book there is it and it's left bleak we're not it's not a happy ending it's it's ugh. He's moving into his next phase, and he's still not feeling good about where he's come from. Mm-hmm. He hasn't felt any closure since what happened in France, and and that's very bleak. Um, uh, do you believe the dream at the end? I, I'm maybe I'm delusional, but I sort of read that as hopeful from when he at the very end. Like he, um, in the dream, I knew that he was going ahead and he's talking about his father in this dream. Mm-hmm. He was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there mm-hmm. and all that dark, all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there. I mean, that's sort of like the father is there waiting. Maybe it's just death that he's dreaming of or moving towards death that way. But the fact that there's light and warmth and a father figure at the end, I yeah. read that last little dream is somewhat hopeful and then he woke uh, or up. delusional again. I don't know. But yeah. no, it's absolutely bleak. No, no doubt about that. But yeah. What do you guys think? What do you think, Nick? I don't know. That that it's just it's the dream he has the first day after he's retired, right? He goes, I have time to dream now, and this right. I mean, that's and his his dream is of his father, um, going ahead. And the the previous time we talked about him, he goes, I'm 20 years older than he ever been. It's just it is. It's I don't know if it's depressing i don't know if it's bleak it is it is saying something that the person who is leading him was 20 years younger than he ever made it to um i don't know what about you okay i think a universal truth is that our first as as men at least our first role model is our father mm-hmm. and, and we all want to live up to that and he's he's held on to that and, and yeah he's he's lived a much longer life than his father but he's still He's trying to catch up with him, and, and, and that's what he's saying in the dream. He's trying to catch up with his father, or at least his perception of his father. Um, and maybe that is hopeful that, that he sees in this dream that, that he's still out there somewhere holding a place for me, keeping things warm for me, and I just got to get there. Um, but I don't know what that means exactly. Yeah, because he's not there yet. Yeah, right, he, right. he hasn't reached it yet. Right. Um, 
I mean, the way he talks about himself, he's so, I mean, he's very down on himself that all he ever did right was Mary Loretta. And that's about it. Yeah. He said he pretty much doesn't deserve that. Um, it is nice how he speaks of her. That, 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 uh, that's pretty neat. But in contrast uh, to the other characters, clearly he's the best, best person in this novel. Yeah. What you guys think? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, he is really hard on himself and that, that haunting quality of memory is, um, with him. And yeah. regret, I guess, regret for leaving his men there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And trying to live up to that. And I, I wonder, I'm not a Brit Lit teacher, so I don't know, but the title of the poem, or it comes from Sailing to Byzantium, uh, the William Yates poem. Yeah, the first line is, that is no country for old men, and, and it goes on from there. Um, and so, but it it's a very complex. Say, yeah. You're out of my league now. Yeah, but it, it, it's very sort of, and it's trying to find some criticism or trying to find out exactly what it was exactly that maybe McCarthy was pinning that on, and I couldn't, it's a hard to pin down poem. Just like this novel, I think it's hard to pin down. Right. And so I think that might have been his intention. That's my lazy answer, at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's inscrutable. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much you guys want to actually talk about the plot. It's it's kind of a cat and mouse and another it's cat. It's a page turner, for sure. It's yeah. awesome that way. Yeah. You know, it's it would be a noir if there was any hope at the end. Um, but, you know, essentially, uh, Llewellyn is trying to stay a step ahead of first... Um, Anton Chigurh, but also uh, whoever the the financier is gets kind of antsy, and so he hires another group of people trying to hunt him down as well, uh, which Chigurh is not happy about later. Um, also, at, we already mentioned him, but at a certain point, Carson Wells shows up. Carson Wells is a special ops guy uh, who runs into Llewellyn at the hospital, right? That's right. Finds him. He, he's, Finds he hunts him. him down, which I'd love to know in 1980 how you do that. But yeah. <laughs> I also want to. Now, this would be interesting. Maybe not an origin story. What's the backstory for Carson Wells and Anton Chigurh? Oh, yeah. They know each other. They work together. Oh, what does right. that even yeah. mean? Right, right. Yeah. And, and how did Carson survive <laughs> the first time, at least? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, because we also get. Okay, so the first time we see Chigurh around anyone. It's this other group of, you know, related to the gang that are like looking at the the, the scene and they're trying to pick it apart. And he seems uncomfortable being around people immediately. He's like trying to use slang and everyone's just very uncomfortable, which you would be. I imagine he smells like blood constantly. Um (laughs) <laughs> smells like death. Yeah. I mean, like he he comes from killing the deputy. Like yeah. that's his first stop, um, and he you know he gets the handcuffs off, but his wrists are cut up constantly. Yeah. The man is just bleeding all the time, um, and so when Carson Wells shows up, yeah, we assume it was from some other hit that they had to make. But you get the feeling Wells is put together. He's he's more of your gunslinger stereotype. He's not chatty, but he's a person. Shigur is just a force of evil. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, who, he, says he kills those guys shortly after, right? Oh, right he, away. Yeah. He gets uh, the information he wants, and then bam, bam, right. let's move on. And takes, their, takes their Dodge Ram Charger, and he's on his way. Yeah. Well, and the car thing comes up again and yeah. again and again and again. He'll kill someone because his car runs out of gas. At one point, he breaks down. Someone comes to help him. Uh, he 
makes small talk about which airports, and then he kills him, takes the chickens out the back of his truck, and we have a new truck again. It's mm-hmm. it's amazing. And again, I, I, we, we, there's no moral whatever, but there's clearly rules here. He has to accomplish his mission no matter what. It is very Jim Cameron's Terminator. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just non stop. Always going forward to his goal. Yeah. I wonder if he was offended that there was another group out there looking for the money, right. and if that's what led to that. All right. That, He's going to do the job. This is my job, right? Yeah. Yeah. I can Why see are that you for here? sure. Yeah. So he has to take them out too. Right. It offended his, his sensibility. Yeah. And there's no pause. It's, you know, there, there's not, like, he's just willing to kill. It's remarkable. Um, we have the little bolt pistol thing that, mm-hmm. uh, that Ed Bell explains at one point. <laughs> it's, he doesn't, they don't even kill steer the same way anymore. They have this little, Air pressure gun. Not like the good old days where you had a mall, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One guy just stood above and bashed him in the head all day, yeah. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? Uh, no reason. <laughs> it'll it'll matter again in a yeah, scene. Oh, well, he say, Why did you go to a slaughterhouse when you were a little kid? Or you know, trying to remember oh, that scene? I'm sure it was a nice, wholesome field trip back in the day. <laughs> Those were the good old days, yeah. weren't they? We're going to read the jungle and then go to a slaughterhouse. <laughs> That's, that is synergy right there, friend. Um, but yeah. No, but that, yeah, he has the, the bolt shotgun or whatever that just puts a you know bolt in your forehead and kills you. Which he uses, um, which to, he uses to kill humans instead of and cattle. And doors. And yeah. blast yeah, out doors, the locks. Too, yeah, which is handy. Conveniently enough. Next I mean, time you get locked out, right? There's a home fix-it tip. I uh, was reading about the movie at one point, and they were saying, you know, uh, you know, we had to figure out how to make a silent shotgun because those things don't exist. And so the Coen brothers were talking about how they went to gun people, how it would look. And obviously it's just a fake thing for a movie. Au contraire, because it was in the movie, some people have tried to make silent shotguns oh, since. God. So good. <laughs> Life imitating art. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, and one like the first interaction they have, uh, is at this small, like, motel. What he's done, what Llewellyn's done, is taken the bolts out of the kind of vents so he can hide uh, the money. He knows something's up because Shigoro shows up. And he feels like he's being watched, so he moves around a whole bunch right at the beginning. But he eventually finds the little transponder hidden in the money, uh, which is using to follow him. Uh, their first big shootout leaves Shigur shot in the thigh, which is why he blows up the pharmacy, and um, Llewellyn escapes into Mexico, which is when the band kind of finds him bleeding to death on a, you know, in the center of town. They take him to a hospital, which is when we get to Wells. Um, I'm trying my best to keep the blood going. That, it's, that it's shootout scene, I, I almost can't keep up. During the shootout scene, there is so much going on between the three parties, Mm -hmm. because originally, obviously, it's Llewellyn and and Shigur, and then the next party comes in, and then it ends up being with Shigur and the other group, Yeah, while Llewellyn's making an escape. It's hard to keep up. It is. Well, and, I mean, to to wit, uh, Llewellyn's kind of walking along, and another car picks him up, and Shigur just kills everyone involved, and so... We, it, it's just complete disorientation. Right. You, the bullets are flying. We don't know what's going on. Um, and then we wake up in a hospital, uh, yeah. pretty much. Um, and again, Ed Tom Bell is still the next town over investigating the last part of the book. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's i think the other part too which bell's trying to keep up with is it's not a murder and then it dies down this is just constant he yeah. can't keep up we'll get to the coffee the idea that you make one cup, a pot of coffee a week, and just drink it for oh, Uncle Ellis. Oh, Uncle Ellis is such existence out there. It is. It is. Okay. You find something for us, Mike? Well, I was just looking at that fight scene. I don't know if I could um, summarize it, but there's a quote I found before. I think it's just the novel in two sentences. Um, this is talking about Moss. But by the time he got up, he knew he was probably going to have to kill somebody. He just didn't know who it was. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. that's what the novel, that's the propulsive force of the novel. Something's going to happen, you know, um, but you just don't know who it's going to happen to or next or what order. Uh, and that's no slight to the novel at all. It keeps you turning the pages. Well, and I guess there's something to be said here about masculinity, because Cormac McCarthy mostly writes about men in his books. Very, yeah. And there is this kind of sense of duty, this sense of, well, I've gotten myself into this situation. I'm going to get out, specifically get out by myself. Uh, you know, he could have turned himself in. He should have, he could have gotten help from the, sh- no, he's, he's going to deal with this himself. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you think this is his book until he ends up mm-hmm. dead about 75% through it. Yeah. Very unceremoniously. Um, this is the, I think, this is when, uh, Ed Tom Bell finds him again. He's like, well, I was literally 30 seconds too late. Yeah. Um, just shot yeah. dead by the other group. Painful. So, could you teach this? Should I teach this, or could I? Could you? Should you? Would well, you? if I was about to retire. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, it it's a perfect encapsulation of post-9-11 style fiction. It's often very bleak. Uh, the morality is in high question. It's usually one person against a force of evil. I mean, you can look at Bond movies, you can look at almost any action movie where you're talking Jason Bourne or what. It's this unstoppable force. Is there a chance? Um, but it is so visceral. It would be an interesting one if we did Amlet for seniors instead. Right. Because I think for them it would be interesting just to talk about from a moralistic perspective. Is there a moral center here? What do we do with it? Because I can't imagine someone picking up this book and not being able to just fly through it. The language is pretty straightforward. However, there are parts of it I just you, you just have to put the book down for a second mm-hmm. and come you know walk around the block, come back. Yeah. Because it's maybe it's his simple style that makes it that much more visceral. You know, I, I mentioned Tom Harris earlier. I've read Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal, and those scenes are almost romantic in the literature sense, like very colorful. This is so brusque. It feels that much more awful. Um, again, just you mentioned the scene that we talked about earlier. He breaks into a pharmacy to pull buckshot out of his leg. He is washing it. He is it, essentially, he plunges a hole in the top of a bottle of like antiseptic, spraying his thigh down, injecting himself. But it's like three pages. Mm-hmm. And you're just, it's going through very matter of fact, like you're reading a cookbook. But it is, <laughs> but it is the most awful thing no, you're right. read it's, all day. It's a simple short sentence. This is how you do it. Take yeah. this, do that. Yeah, you got to clean boom, out boom, the buckshot. This is how you do it. Yeah. yeah. But very, even as you're saying that, I'm just wincing, remembering reading that. So, very yeah. weird version of a Boy Scout first aid manual. No, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I think there is 
it is a good example of late 20th century, early 21st century American fiction. I think it could be taught to the right group. I just, for mass consumption, it's really a very rough read. Yeah, I agree. It would definitely yeah. not fly with 10th graders here. No, um, it would need to be... So- we did this for the free-to-read summer reading a couple times. No country? Yes. Okay. So they chose it. Right. Um, did you have a lot of people sign up for that? Uh, five to eight. I think okay. we did it two years, maybe. Yeah. For those who um, don't know or are listening, so what we did here for summer reading for a couple of years was faculty members would pick any book that they were passionate about or curious about, and then students would sign up to read it over the summer, and then you would meet on the first day back from from summer break and just talk about the book. Right. Yeah. So you got to see an insight to other teachers, maybe not traditional literature teachers, and just a way to share good books. So you did No Country? We did it a couple times. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it was always a mixed bag, but I would say that, you know, three-quarters of them legitimately read it and right. legitimately digested it. Which is a victory in itself. It is, yes. yeah. Um, always, obviously, upperclassmen, um, juniors and seniors. Uh I, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I don't think you could just put it on the list and say this is part of what we're doing this year. Um, it does have to be a little more slight because, for one, you have to be able to read and digest what's happening here. Yeah. That's not for everyone. Yeah. And, and I get that. Um, Did you get the sense that um, students just watched the movie when you had those book there discussions? There were definitely some in the group that yeah. just watched the movie. Right. That's and, always and, the fear. Yeah, of course. And some of the first questions I proposed to them. Would clarify All right, who only them, watched yeah. the movie and who did not. <laughs> sure. Because uh, as good as the movie is, as loyal as the movie is, it does leave out a fair amount. Has to. I mean, you sure. can't put everything in. All right. Um, so you can pick out who actually read pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, if they hadn't heard of the story in France, then obviously they didn't read the book. Because mm-hmm. it's not in the movie. So. But overall, what were their what were their students take away? Did they like it? Did that turn them on to more McCarthy, or they turned it off? I don't know if it turned them on to more McCarthy. I, they liked it. They were a little bit like I was in college, and they they noticed how different it was stylistically. That it could it could at times, at least early on, be a little challenging to read because mm-hmm. he's so different. But that once you get into it, the pace just takes over and it just flies. And I think that the ones who got sucked in, that's why. Right. Um, the ones who turned away, it's because they couldn't overcome that just the narrative and the way that it's presented. Right. Um, but if you can accept that and, and really just go with the flow of it, you can't put it down. And, yeah. and juniors and seniors in high school were capable of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never taught it, but when I was reading AP um, lit exams, it came up a lot, that mm-hmm. and the road a lot. So people out there are teaching it to high schoolers, or at least it's on their list for them to write about. So The road well, only can be taught in winter. <laughs> I've read three Cormac McCarthy books. This is by far the best. Um, I read The Road and Child of God, which is more recent. Child of God is... He he does a take on Ed Gein. Uh, oh, and it's, I've not read that. It's very bleak and it's very, uh, I don't know, very white trash kind of whatever. Uh, but The Road is one of the most depressing things I've ever read. So, yeah, it is. You know. It is. That's, it, that one's rough. That yeah. one's a slog. I mean, you just like, okay, I'm going to pick it up again, but... Oof. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, we had, um, sorry. No, no, please. I was going to say, we had all the pretty horses on required summer reading for two years here for American Lit. And it was just too tough. Because if you remember half the novels in Spanish, and so that turned people off. And then it wasn't the novel to do for summer reading where they're just picking it up on their own. We needed to, like, coach them and teach them along. Sure. So we dropped it for that reason. So. 
Yeah, the, I haven't read all the Pretty Horse. I want to do blood, uh, that and Blood Meridian. Those are those are the two that you know got him his notoriety. Right. Um, but uh, I will say, if you're not reading it for a class, read this book. It is it is it is a remarkable piece of fiction. Yeah. And it's like nothing you'll read, uh, which is something else we try to emphasize. Yeah, I mean, stretch yeah. yourself, find something, try something new. And I think if you're a McCarthy person, you'll find out pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot more to explore. Yeah, the first ten pages have either hooked you or, or not. Right. Like, you're, you're in you're in right away or you're not. So, anyway, Matt, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for yeah, having me. Yeah, this is awesome. Enjoyed it. Good yeah, suggestion. Yeah. yeah. And I was going to say we should, the other book he pitched me, at one point we talked about The Only Plane in the Sky. But next time you'll get to do something a little bit happier. Yeah, it might be time to bring things up a little bit. <laughs> a little bit more hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, it's not a high bar. Yeah, a lot of other happier options. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mike, thanks as always. Yeah, this is great as always. Um, thank you for listening, subscribing, doing all the things you do to make sure people get our podcast. Uh, for those of you around the world now that we have a huge global audience, thank you very much. We obviously did this movie because the this book. This book. We did this book because the Academy Awards. Yeah, That's I think, right. I, I, think you, I think you added it, Matt. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We did this book because the Academy Awards are coming. The Coen Brothers are up for another Academy Award. I thought it would be good to do one that was a faithful adaptation yes. as a book. Um, so, you know, our other episode, which has come out, is on The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, which is another excellent Joel Coen movie. Uh, so. Next month, we'll come back with something less movie-related. But thanks, guys. Thanks for everything you do. Bye, guys. See you.